Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have on Wendy Dio. She's the president and owner of Nijin Management. Over the past 30 years, she's been involved in many aspects of the music business, receiving rewards from performance and pole star for stage set design and concert video production, along with serving as executive producer on numerous gold and platinum albums. She was the wife and manager of the iconic Ronnie James Dio, and in 2010, she co-founded the Ronnie James Dio Stand Up and Shout Cancer Fund, which has raised over $2 million for research, education, and early detection screenings. She's helped contribute to the posthumous release of Ronnie James Dio's book, Rainbow in the Dark, the autobiography. And Wendy was also one of the producers and prominently featured in the amazing documentary, Dio, Dreamers Never Die. Wendy, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And so, okay, what I usually do is I read a passage from the book, but first I want to say for anybody who doesn't know me, I mean, obviously some of our audience definitely won't know me. I am a huge Ronnie James Dio fan. So not only did I watch the documentary, I reached out to uh, Sharon, who works with Wendy a couple of years ago. And so you guys actually sent me a copy of the book, which I was incredibly grateful for. So the autobiography of Dio, I probably finished it within about four or five days. I was just doing nothing but reading that book. Uh, one of the best books I've ever read, one of the best definitely music books I've ever read. So in terms of documentaries, I find that there, so I have two favorite documentaries. One was the one that recently came out about Tupac Shakur called Dear Mama. And the other one was Dreamers Never Die about DL. So, so much to get into. First, I want to read a passage from the book. So, and this is a passage for, written by Ronnie from the chapter called Hungry for Heaven, which is one of my favorite songs ever. I would say it's probably one of my top three favorite songs. So Ronnie wrote, if the last decade had taught me anything, it's not to make predictions. As the singer and elf, I could never in my wildest fantasies have imagined what would happen to me. Making music with some of the biggest rock artists in the world, cutting albums that would have that would be talked about in the same way as records I had played and bowed down to when I was growing up. Starting over from the back of a car where Wendy and I drove 3,000 miles down from LA, down to LA, and what so easily could have been the last chance saloon, putting a band back to putting a band together and building it from the ground up to world tours and giant arenas. It sounds crazy, unreal, even unreal even, but it's what happened. Where do I go from here? Well, right now, having just finished another show, I'll be outside signing autographs for the fans. Like singing on stage, writing your life in verse, or sitting remembering with Wendy, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. So we, in the documentary, as well as in the book, we get this kind of contrasting picture of Ronnie. So we get the perfectionist side and how he focused on the music, who he was creatively, who he was maybe even with his bandmates. And then we also get the side of the fans, the side that we see. So uh, I really quickly want to say that uh, Krista Thomason, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, she's also a huge Ronnie James Dio fan uh, and Bill Irwin, who's also been on our show. He's one of the uh, editors and authors of the pop, uh, the culture, what is it called? Uh, pop culture and philosophy series. So they all attest to the, the type of person that Ronnie Dio was and how great he was, how gracious he was to fans. They both got to saw, see him live, which I'm really jealous of. But can you talk a little bit about how Ronnie was in that contrasting way that he was in some ways an enigma, but he was also these kind of extremes of personality. He was very serious when he needed to be, but he was also very kind and considerate and compassionate when he needed to be as well. And funny. And funny. <laughs> no, he was. He was, um, was a perfectionist. He was a control freak. Um, as I am. Uh, so um, he, I mean, on stage, he was a big star and uh, on his fancy clothes and everything. Off stage, he was, um, he didn't care about money. He did not care about clothes. Uh, he liked to go to Walmart and buy sweats and things and hang out at home. Uh, he loved to have his friends over. We have a bar at the house um, that we bought in the 80s over from a pub in England and we put it directly in our house. And um, he liked to have his friends over and we'd sit around and have drinks at the house. Um, loved his animals. Um, loved sports. Could not keep him away from sports. That wrote most of his songs uh, with acoustic guitar sitting watching sports. The Giants. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that, that perfectionistic side? So I know we, uh, in the book with you, you guys, and I mean, we thought about it and I guess we're going to cover it now. Uh, so the fact that he actually didn't like the song Rainbow in the Dark initially, which is obviously an all-time heavy metal classic. And I would just say a classic of music in general. But what was that like, I mean, from your end and seeing the perfectionist? Because I'm sure what probably was happening was a lot of you as bandmates, especially were thinking like, this is like marvelous. Like, how do you see flaws in this? I mean, Charlie Chaplin was another example. He was also notoriously perfectionistic where people would look at him and be like, dude, like this is perfect. What are you, what are you thinking? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Ronnie always, like, um, with Rainbow in the Dark, he, he thought it was getting too commercial again. And he felt like he did not want to be commercial. He wanted to do the things he wanted to do. But, um, you know, uh, he got talked into keeping it. And I'm glad he did. He's even glad he did. Because it was a great, it's a great song. It's a great song. And it needed that keyboard part in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, um, was, uh, what was so commercial about it? Like, uh, is it that it just wasn't like his authentic kind of sound? Is, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Same as like Mystery. Mystery was the turning point where he did not want to be... Uh, he did not want the way the band was going. He felt that it was getting really into what he did not want in Rainbow, where they wanted it to be more commercial and things. He did not want to do that. He wanted to write his epic songs with the stories that he told in there, which was always about good and evil and um, overcoming your things that you need to do in life, that you need to be the best you can and just um, uh, never give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with Rainbow in the Dark, what was, so I'm sure when you guys heard even the rift in the beginning, I mean, it felt like it was this amazing thing. So what was it about it specifically that he felt like it wasn't wasn't for him? It wasn't sort of his niche? What did he think it was going to turn out to be? I think it's the keyboards that bothered him mm. in it. I think that's what, because, you know, the heavy metal band, it's the guitar that is the dominant force. And I think he felt that the keyboards was, uh, was over, overbearing the, the guitar. And how was he talked into finally keeping it? Everybody, everybody was like, no, no, you have to keep it. You have to listen more. You have to listen more. And, you know, Ronnie was, as I said, he was, uh, he was a perfectionist, but he wasn't, um, he would listen to what other people said. And if he felt that they were right, he would go along with what they said. He, he, he wasn't like, it's my way or the highway all the time. Mm. So what was that stubbornness you think? What was it about, especially creatively? What was the thinking going on? No, his creativity, uh, he just was such a creative person. I mean, he never stopped thinking music. Uh, His whole life was music. Yeah, Yeah, because I know he clashed, especially in the beginning with Richie Blackmore. So for our audience, for those who don't know, he was a part of Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Uh, So Rainbow was this really wonderful combination. Richie Blackmore was just coming off of Deep Purple at the time. And so you would think, you know, these two kind of rock gods together would have been a match made in heaven. Obviously, it was for a little bit of time. Then at some point, it kind of turned sour. But when you think about that combination, you now think of the strife between them. So can you talk a little bit about what it was was like between the two of them in the sense of the creative differences they had, uh, kind of how did they sort of meet up how did they get together what did they have a, what did they have as a vision for the band initially and then how did they end up going their separate ways um okay so i think originally you know ronnie i didn't i met ronnie when he was in rainbow so before i had met ronnie he was obviously he, they had done like eight i think eight tours uh, worldwide tours as elf uh opening for um deep purple and, um, you know, Richie had come to really <clears throat> admire Ronnie's singing uh, ability. And so uh, they went off and wrote um, a couple of songs. And um, then that's when he decided to ask Ronnie to join the band. Well, to, to form a band with him. Actually, the first Richie Blackmore's Rainbow is all of Elf, except for the guitar player. So he mm. took the whole band, but then one by one, got rid of the people, um, as he always did. And um, Ronnie and him had a very great creative uh, thinking together. Uh, Richie wanted medieval music. Ronnie was always loved back in those times. And so uh, it was a great creativity between the two of them. Um, I think just um, as it went on, uh, Cozy came into the band, which was fantastic. Jimmy, unfortunately, was let go, which was, you know, Ronnie's really true friend. Um, And then uh, it just became that the record label and people were in Richie's ear saying, you've got to be more commercial, you've got to be more commercial, you've got to write love songs. Well, that to Ronnie was like, no, I do not (laughs) like love songs, no. So it came to a head where um, Ronnie and him parted ways. And we drove, I was with Ronnie. Then I met Ronnie. I met Ronnie when he had just, they had just finished uh, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, the first album. And um, I met Ronnie then. They had they had finished the album, but they had not toured yet. So that's when, I, that's when I met Ronnie. I came into the picture. So I know mostly about everything about Rainbow because I was there. 
You know, I, I wanted to ask you since you mentioned that, and you did you meet him at a show or how did you guys actually officially meet? No, I met him at the Rainbow. I was working at the Rainbow as a waitress. Uh -huh. um, I knew Richie and I knew Richie's wife. I knew all of them because I was a great Deep Purple fan. Um, and so I was working there and they invited me to go to a party. They were having a party up at the um, in Hollywood Hills at a house they were leased. And I went up there and Ronnie was following me around and I was like, too short for me. Um, <laughs> so I passed him off to friends, but we ended, we ended up talking and talking and then we ended up going down to Denny's for breakfast with a bunch of people. Um, it was like, we were talking till I know, five, six in the morning, we went to breakfast and we went for a drive up to Malibu and I just fell in love with his brain, I think. And it was, we didn't really think it was going to be a uh, full-time relationship. We, um, he was going on tour in a few weeks, so mm. we just thought we would just be together for a couple of weeks, and he was going to be gone. And so that's what happened, and he left. And then he called me and said, um, why don't you quit your job and come on the road? I said, no, wow. I can't quit my job, but I'll come for a couple of weeks, and I went mm. for the rest of my life. <laughs> Well, that's such a lovely story. And yeah, yeah. and then I remember in the book, it also goes into how you eventually and essentially became his manager. So it, it, that wasn't mm -hmm. your initial relationship, but how did Ronnie figure out that that's what he wanted for himself and for both of you? Well, okay. So when he left, well, when he went into Richard Blackmore's Rainbow, um, they, uh, Richie said, what about your manager? Ronnie goes, oh, I love my manager. So I said, okay. So they, it was Ronnie's manager that managed Rainbow. So when Ronnie left the band, uh, and we were going back to California, he expected the managers to still continue managing him. Mm. But he said, no, I got Richie. So Ronnie was left without a manager. So it wasn't my intention to be a manager. It was just that Ronnie decided that that was what it was going to be because I was managing, I always managed the affairs of the money and everything. Ronnie didn't care about money. He was like, when I first met him, I so told him, you know, when he said, quit your job. I said, no, because I like to buy nice things. I, I like my money. I don't want to ask for money. He goes, okay, then will you just take care of all the finances? I don't care about it. So I always hmm. took care of the finances after that. And then it just like became, okay, so you're my manager. Wow. Um, wow. I did have a, <clears throat> a background in music. I had worked at Decca Records as an intern um, from when I left school. And uh, I'd worked for some uh, entertainment attorneys in the music business. Um, I was uh, working at the Rainbow. Uh, I was doing some filming at the time. So I was like wanting to be an actress or something, whatever. Um, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was the most, what would you say are the most maybe rewarding and challenging parts of uh, having managed his career? Well, it's very challenging in the beginning because um, when he had come, when he had come out of Black Sabbath, mm. um, you know, uh, we only had a solo deal, record deal, which wasn't very much money, and um, we had a small house that we had bought. We mortgaged our house because he, with a band deal, it had to be as good and as big as Sabbath. Um, we did a lot of things ourselves. Um, if you uh, had the first Dio album, which was an LP, uh, inside there was a, a, a sleeve, an inner sleeve that had, I had pictures of Ronnie and the band as, as, as young kids and different photos. And then on the back, it was supposed to be a, um, a competition with Warner Brothers, but of course that never happened because, you know, record companies promise you things and they never do. So there was yeah. all these things that I cut out and put in there, you know, like, uh, you had to guess the songs, what it was. It was like Tara Woman and all these different things. You had to guess the songs, Catch a Rainbow, whatever. Um, that never happened. We did that. I had to learn about production because we didn't have the money to hire a proper production person. So I learned about um, trailers and, 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 you know, all the different dance decks and whatever all these other things were. I hired all the people. I hired the buses myself. I hired all the stuff. It was a lot of very, very hard work because a lot of stuff goes behind behind the scenes. Um, and I was really a hands-on manager. And, and, you know, I think that doing all that stuff and not knowing what the album was going to do, not knowing what was going to happen and seeing that first show when everything was just 
amazing. The kids, the reaction was amazing. I had goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps now. I was talking about it. Up my arm, <laughs> and it was like, yes, we made it. We did it. We did it. You know? Yeah. yeah. What's so incredible is that you think of, let's say, these two bands initially. So, I mean, Elf counts, but not as much as I would say. And I'm sure many, you would agree with me too. Many people would agree. So not as much as Rainbow's Black Sabbath. So, you know, and I know the book talked about this a lot. And I, I just, I, I want to kind of get a deeper insight into this because so you have a band like Rainbow. So, okay, Ronnie's like, eh, you know, I want to take the risk. I want to leave this band. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Then Sabbath comes around. Okay. Let's say that's luck, right? Then, okay. It's not really working out with him and Tony and Geezer. And then it's like, oh, well, okay. Now I want to start my own band. How does somebody do that? So you're already in two <laughs> iconic bands. You get lucky once and you leave and you're like, oh, okay, great. I fall into Black Sabbath. Phenomenal. And then you're like, oh, well, hey, I want to do this again. How? What is the mentality of a person in that kind of state? Oh, well, that's what he, where Ronnie was. He was a very special person. He wanted to do things that he wanted to do. And, you know, if he didn't want to do it, nobody's going to talk him into doing what he didn't want to do. So he just was in charge of his own destiny and he just did it. And he was fortunate enough to have the talent to be able to do that yeah yeah and then so when he left black sabbath well actually let's actually go back to the richie blackmore so now he's leaving uh blackmore's rainbow and how does he connect with tony i mean how does black sabbath get started because obviously now ozzy's coming out of the band he's going off and do his own thing so i mean essentially they're looking for a lead singer and how did they how do they pick ronnie and how did ronnie pick them actually they weren't looking for a lead singer and ozzy was still in the band um yeah. well we drove three thousand miles um over to uh, to california with our dog and cat and um we didn't have any money um because in in rainbow we'd been given a big house to to live in and a nice car and everything else but didn't really have any money um and so luckily or unluckily my grandmother had passed away and left me some a little bit of money so we used that we bought a little station wagon and we drove with our little bits of whatever we had and um, we drove to California because I said we have to go there you know this is where you're going to have to form a band together and he was working with Skunk Baxter he was working with a bunch of different people did like three different bands um and he was at the Rainbow one night and bumped into Tony and Tony and him got talking and um he said uh, Tony invited him to go up to the house and listen to a song that he had uh, some music he'd written and so um, Ronnie went up there and they started fiddling around and Ronnie got some music together and it was uh, Children of the Sea. And wow. they wrote that song. And uh, then uh, then Tony decided he wanted to leave Sabbath and form a band with Ronnie. Um, and then uh, all of a sudden Geezer was in and Bill was in and, and Ozzy was out. And so they started the band and uh, decided they'd call it something else. And then they decided, no, let's just call it Black Sabbath. Keep it, carry on. I mean, was it frightening for Ronnie to replace Ozzy at the time? Because Ozzy was essentially on this road to being an icon, if not already so. Yeah, no, he, um, well, they were managed by Don Arden. And of course, Sharon was the daughter. So Sharon took Ozzy and um, Don took Sabbath. But they parted ways because um, this didn't go down what they wanted to do. So they parted ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so for Ronnie trying to replace Roz Ozzy, was that you at all on his mind? Or was he just thinking, well, this is my own band and we're going to do something totally different? I don't know really what he was thinking. I know that it was hard to replace Ozzy. Right. Um, fans in the beginning would give him the finger and spit on him and things like that. But once they heard the band and they started listening to him and, and listen, they all came around because, you know, there's not one band better than the other. You know, Ozzy is an icon. He was the innovator of Black Sabbath. Um, and the, that part of Sabbath is just as good as the part with Ronnie. It's just different. It's two different. It's actually two different bands. Yeah, in the beginning, you know, when a band changes the singer, all the like diehard fans, original fans, they're always like, ah, you know, what's going, you know, I, I I can't get behind this new singer. Who is this? You know, all that. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, with Dio, I, you can't even say that. He was so yeah. amazing that like that transcended that. Like when people actually first heard him, they're like, oh, okay. 
I I don't care. Okay, I, not Ozzy who, but you know what I'm saying. Like they were they were cool with it, right? Like yes. that, I got even got that vibe kind of from the documentary. documentary. I, who was it? Was it Sebastian Bach in the documentary? I don't remember now because I saw. Oh, it he was. He, yes, he, yeah, he was yeah. definitely in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't remember. He's a so character. He's a real character <laughs> and a big deal fan. <laughs> Yeah, so so I don't remember exactly the scene. So I saw the documentary in theaters when it came out last year. Uh, so I don't remember who it was, but somebody said when they were in their basement and then they had the album and then they're like, ah, you know, Black Sabbath, this is Ozzy's band. But the person, I think it was Sebastian. And then he put it on and then he heard Neon Knights and he's like, wait, holy shit. I went from like, oh, this kind of sucks. to like, this is amazing. Like, this is right, amazing. exactly, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this, yeah. The, this such the I would say the interesting and the most interesting probably part about Dio's music is it's it's all his themes, from my opinion. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I'm obviously I don't know what the creative process exactly was, but it's all like so. If you look at the trajectory from Rainbow, no, from Elf to Rainbow through Sabbath to the band Dio, it's it's all his themes. Like it's these magical types, kind of like these warlocks, and uh, you know, Magica was its own concept album, and it's these yeah. kind of like mythical realms. So what's so interesting is that the imprint was always Dio. So you're so right. When you say that Black Sabbath of Ozzy, which was a little bit more mellow, and it was kind of a, it's a much more harsher, more political tone. Whereas Dio mm -hmm. took it into something, it's something way faster, and then it was way more sort of fantastical, and it was way more uplifting. There's also Ozzy. something about, yeah, uplifting. Okay, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I was thinking there's something kind of like heroic, or like you yeah. think of like the hero's journey a little bit when you think of his. Music. That was it more almost... melodic as well, more melodic. Yeah, yeah, and it feels like it. It takes you. Uh, I don't know. It, it kind of. Uh, it's it's it almost takes you sort of like on a journey through yeah. the song, right? And you start kind it of gives like, you a choice and gives you a choice between good and evil. You take make yeah. your own mind up. Oh, yeah. okay. So now that we're on that, because I really want to talk about the themes of Dio songs. So uh, actually, I want to ask Ashley a question. So our friend Ashley Oitach, so she's a huge Ronnie James Dio fan, but I really, I'm going to first ask the question then I really want to get into the themes of his music. I mean, this is going to be about it. So Ashley actually asked, uh, she said something, uh, I'm j I don't want to butcher her question. Uh, she said, what would you say are some, what, what are Dio's favorite songs out of the songs that he's written? And what were his least favorite songs that he's written? And why? Oh, least favorite song is Mystery. I know that one. Yeah. Obviously, if I was too commercial. Um, I think that maybe in Angry Machines, um, he was being pushed to go into more of an industrialist way. So I don't think he was that happy with the album. Um, his favorites, well, his favorite time of all time was in Black Sabbath. He loved oh, wow. being in that band because he said that they're such iconic musicians that each one of them had to keep up with the other ones because they were all so good. Wow. Cool. That's and that's one of the things that I really am happy about, that he got to go full circle and be back with the Sabs at the end before he passed away. Yeah, yeah, the Heaven and Hell show is like the one thing I always regretted uh, not going to. So what's so funny is actually, I actually once had a dream where I was crying in the dream. So in the dream, I was either not in that exact show, but I, I actually was in the Heaven and Hell show in my dream. And I'm like, oh my God, Rodney's alive. Like, this is incredible. And I'm here. <laughs> and I woke up. Yeah, that actually legit. I've had many, many, many dreams where I think he's still alive. And then I wake up and he's not. It's many, many dreams. I had them every, almost every night for at least two or three years. Oh, wow. I mean, any sort of themes that you would be okay with talking about within the dreams? Just thinking about, you know, we'd just be going somewhere or doing something or just, you know, watching TV or even playing with the dogs. Just something. It was so very strange. And then he was going to go on tour. And I was, oh, he's all better now. We're going to go on tour. I'm fixing it up. I'm making plans and everything. And then it's not there. Oh, wow. I could relate to that. Yeah, I, I had a, yeah, I, I'll get personal. I was going to talk generally. But yeah, like, so when my mom passed, uh, I would like have also those kinds of dreams where yeah. she's alive, we're interacting yeah. and all that. And then it feels so real. You're, you're it does. Right there, it feels you know? really real. Yeah, exactly. And then you wake up and you're like, you know, there's that. Uh, I mean, on one level, it's it's good. It's like a good reminder, you know, how, how you mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. felt about them, how you feel about them. Another level, I'm like, damn, I kind of I hate that. Like, you almost kind of wish the dream was, you know, was true yeah, or yeah. it's actually happening. But, you know, yeah. definitely relatable. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, 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 it's a bit of sweet. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then, you know, we were thinking also about just Ronnie's philosophy. And obviously, since you mentioned good and evil. So what, so Ronnie had a lot of, so again, I don't want to, cause I don't want to kind of mix it up. Okay. So I want to actually get to the magic part a little bit later. So Ronnie's first focus was on good and evil. So the way I kind of understand it from just reading about Ronnie, listening to his interviews is that for Ronnie, he wasn't much of a, I guess, religious person, even though he does seem to have religious uh, imagery, symbology in the songs, uh, symbolism in the songs. Uh, so what is it that kind of Ronnie thought about good and evil and why was it so important for him to just just for him to talk about it and then for him to tell us about the choices that we have in relation to it so how did it kind of mesh with the spiritual side because on the one hand it didn't seem like he was very religious but on the other hand it seemed like whatever destiny you created for yourself in the context of that duality was really important to him wow well because he was an altar boy he was brought up in a very italian catholic family his mom is go to church every single day um and so he that was kind of in in his persona he's pushed into him um but then he would question what, uh, things especially when the priests were you know um being sexually abused the kids and stuff so that he was very against um but he wasn't really religious but he believed in something he believed in an oh um something was there something um, but he couldn't put his finger to it. Um, he believed a lot of things that it came from your heart. So you should be a good person because uh, you need to be the ultimate being. And I think Ronnie became the ultimate being at the end because he was such a good, good person. And they broke the mold when he passed away. He, he, he was just such a good person. He did so many good things that nobody knew about. I mean, he, he did so many things for charities, all different charities, autism and kids and stuff, you know, that he didn't even care what was going on. I mean, he saved a kid's life for six months. The kid ended up killing himself anyway. But, you know, he got a call. Um, he was playing in Atlanta and he was on his way back. And I got a call from the police and they said they needed to speak to Ronnie. And I said, well, what do you want? Oh, well, we can't tell you. I said, well, then I can't tell you where he is. And so they said, well, actually, it's the kid is on a tower. He's going to throw himself off the tower unless he speaks to Ronnie. Wow. So I said, so what do you want me to do? They said, well, we need Ronnie to go up there. I said, well, he's traveling. I'll, I'll. And it was like a very hot day. And this kid had been up there, this 19-year-old kid. And so I called the limo company and I said, you know, when he, when he, when he, start, you know, when they, he gets off the plane, tell him to call me immediately. Right. So... He called me, I told him. And so, yes, he said, yes, of course I will. And so he had a police escort. They put him on a cherry picker. And this kid was up, been up there for hours. Um, and so Ronnie said, what the hell are you doing? Come on here, I want to give you a hug. And the kid immediately got onto the cherry picker with him and they brought him back down. The police grabbed the kid and Ronnie said, no, wait, wait. I said I was going to give him a hug. He gave him a hug. A woman threw her her on the floor and was hugging Ronnie's feet and it was his mother mm. um, and he saved that kid for six months, the kid actually did end up throwing himself and killing himself, but the mother always said we had six months more because of Ronnie oh, wow. so that's oh, the kind God. of things he did that he never never told anyone about or or anyone you know knew about because it was something that was private Right. And you also got the sense from his music that it was that people were just really important to him and that he wanted to teach them. How how come how come that was the case, you think, in your mind? Because like in the music industry, as I'm sure you know, I mean, we definitely don't have to get into this too much, but it's full full of vultures, right? Like it's full of people who are pretty self-absorbed and you know, they're kind of leechy. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so, right. And so why no. was it that Ronnie was so different? And especially for him in a in a kind of in that culture, why do you think it never really affected him to the extent of changing his character? I think he came from very humble uh, beginnings. His uh, grandfather worked in a steel mill. Uh, his parents were, you know, very um, upstanding citizens. They they taught him good and and, and bad and wanted the best for him. Um, yeah, so he had very good values. Uh, but then I think that he, because he was short and he wasn't the sort of person that becomes a rock star, um, he felt that a lot of the fans were too tall, too fat, too this, too that. A lot of fans were like people that other people made fun of or whatever. And he was so against the bullying thing. And he just felt that these people 
were like him, struggling to, to do something that they wanted to do. And so therefore he started to just write about dreams and like, don't give up, you know, or good and bad, you can pick, but you pick what you want and you follow it through and you just, you know, do the best you can and don't let somebody else think that they can tell you what to do because they're right and you're wrong because you're not. Wow. It's, oh my God, it's so hard to even follow up on that. That was so amazing. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be like the biggest fanboy ever. Um, okay. So when, when we're thinking about now going back to themes, when we're thinking about like the sort of, since you mentioned the hero's journey, right? Uh, why was it that Ferrani, again, you know, I'm just going away for, uh, from good and evil a little bit here. Uh, why was it that Ferrani magic was such an important concept in that hero's journey? Because it wasn't just about, Hey, you know, you can do X, Y, and Z to fulfill your goals. It was more like about fantasy and about creating magic out of your life why was that so oh yeah he was very i mean he read a book a day he was so he loved the old medieval times he loved the knights he loved all that fantasy stuff he loved to read sci-fi books and so that's what he decided that was what he was going to write about and that's what he wanted to go back in that kind of a bygone age he wanted to write songs that were like riddles you had to figure out what he was writing about. Was it this or was it that? But each person could make their own mind up about what the song was written about. Yeah, and there was this great quote from the documentary, which I really love. This was super touching. So the quote was, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for mankind. And yeah, again, going back to his music, it, it was so important for him to not only just create something, but just to uplift people, but to create a sort of blueprint for them. And uh, mm -hmm. what I really like was... Uh, what did, and no, I, I'm just, sorry, I just have nah, to say that since you just quoted that. Yeah. And I believe it's the guitarist who uh, gave who gave that quote at the end of the documentary. Mm -hmm. and that was he, Craig Goldie. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. And and he said, uh, you know, Ronnie had nothing to be ashamed of after reading right. that. And yeah. I, that yeah. hit yeah. so hard, like powerfully at the end. But I'm sorry. Go, no, no, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay. So, and then I remember like uh, going back to the Magic album, which is actually one of my favorites. Again, it was this concept album about magic. So what is it that Ronnie hoped to achieve in kind of bringing that medieval world to our world, right? So why was it for him important to incorporate fantasy into, again, sort of this hero's journey or into our own well-being, because it seemed like for him, uh, the way to kind of combat mental health issues, and I'm not saying this was the only thing, but for him to kind of combat our own struggles was to infuse life with magic. I mean, the song Rainbow in the, in the Dark, right? He says, I cry out for magic. I feel it dancing in the light. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. cold, lost right. my hold to the shadows of the night. Yeah, so mm -hmm. what was it about magic that was so fascinating for him, besides, let's say, the medieval aspect of it? Why did he think in some ways it could kind of save us? Well, because magic tricks, you can do magic tricks and you can be somebody you don't want to be, or you could be somewhere else. And things that disappear are maybe not there, but they are there. Um, and with Magicka, he wanted to write, that was supposed to be a trilogy. So see hmm. three albums, he wanted to be like a rock opera. Yeah. Unfortunately, he never got to write the rest of it, which he really wanted. He really wanted to write that. That was a story um and and good again good versus evil yeah yeah and the question i've always wanted to ask you guys of so i know he was against all uh, love music or at least to whatever extent but in that album he has a song as not as, as long as it's not about love what how did he change his mind there why did he write that song <laughs> well because that was part of the story um of magica about the one that was uh that was was there that would be loved and carry on uh, the the lineage. Hmm. Oh, wow. Interesting. So for him, it was, so as long as it's a part of a concept, the love yeah. part wasn't, so it wasn't, oh, okay. So it didn't feel like it was commercialized. Like he was making no, a love song no, for the sake no. of money. Oh, it was because it was part of the story. So it was interesting. part of the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So uh, for, for, did you want to ask something? No, go go for it. I'll ask out. Okay, so yeah, so for Ronnie, what was it? Okay, so this is the part that was really, uh, for me, really enticing and really fascinating about the documentary. So uh, I'm I'm gonna just go into a little bit of the background. So Ronnie was really popular in the '90s, uh, the early '90s, definitely the '80s, obviously with Sabbath and the early '80s and the mid '80s with Dio, and then so out of nowhere, kind of the heavy metal scene just sort of falls apart a little bit, and then you know bands like Rad and all these other people eventually grunge, yeah, a grunge takes over, right? Mm -hmm. So what I loved so much about 
Ronnie is, and this is the part that I really want to ask you about, is how did he maintain his authenticity? Because I'm sure at that time, the record labels were telling him like, dude, you got to change, man. There's so much going on in the world. And I mean, you know, the world is always evolving and there's always going to be the commercial aspect of, and you even mentioned it, you guys were poor at a point, you know, you were living off of an inheritance. So why is it that Ronnie felt like authenticity was important to him? And why is it that at, at the point, even where he's getting maybe dozens of people at a show where like, let's say he was used to, you know, hundreds of thousands. I mean, the people that I know, uh, so like Bill Irwin, again, uh, who uh, who went to his, oh, so by the way, Bill Irwin actually, so again, from the uh, pop culture and philosophy series, he was at the Sacred Heart tour. I was so fucking jealous of him. He was at the <laughs> 1986 yeah, Sacred Heart. I think he was either at the Philadelphia show or maybe at one of the show, maybe New Jersey, something like that. But I was so jealous when he told me that. Uh, so yeah, so Ronnie's here. He's selling out the spectrum. Uh, we have the story about him going into Madison Square Garden. But obviously at that point, you were telling him like, hey, dude, we should do Giant Stadium. You don't have to do the garden. The garden is too small for us. But Ronnie said, no, you know, I want to do the garden because it's New York. I've always wanted to be here. But how does he get to that point where he's going from hundreds of thousands of fans or tens of thousands of fans? And then now he's performing in front of dozens of people. And he's still saying like, no, I want to hold on to this because the people who love me, they love me for me. It's not about the money. Mm -hmm. Well, that was probably the most devastating time for Ronnie to lose his record deal. He lost his record deal with Warner Brothers, as did Van Halen and a lot of people, because grunge came in and metal was out. He was so upset. I don't think he did anything for a year. Wow. I went out to find a label. And actually, I found labels that were now independent, which I didn't know before that the majors make you sign forever and a day, um, and it becomes theirs forever. Uh, you sign with an independent, and it's a license deal, and maybe in five or seven years, you get it back again. Wow. So I went and I found a German label for Ronnie. Um, but of course, you know, playing shows were not easy to book. Um, we had to go to smaller places. But Ronnie wanted to carry on. He could have stayed home and not done anything. He didn't. He wanted, those fans were so important to him. didn't matter if there was 80 people or 800,000. He was going to give his all, which he did. And he did some great shows at places where one place, I remember the keyboard player had to play in the toilet because wow. the stage wasn't big enough. Yeah. But he, <laughs> he wasn't, you know, it was a hard time. It was a very hard time. And he wasn't the happiest that he would be, but he he did it because he wanted to do it for the fans. He wasn't going to give up. He wasn't going to say, "I, you know, I've, I've done that. And the funny thing is now I have all the rights back because the 35-year law came in where you can get your rights back. Mm -hmm. So I got my rights back, and guess what? Warner Brothers won the signing. So we signed it to Warner Brothers on a license deal now. And they're fantastic, and they're doing a great job, and they're doing things, they're putting things out, BMG's putting things out, and they're all doing a great job. But when you license something, you have not only do you license and get it back, but you have more control over the product of what's yeah. going on. And um, although I must say, Warner Bros. has always been very, very good, um, especially when Mo Austin was there. Um, they always would, you know, always talk with me about things they were going to put out, what was going on, and so on. Yeah. So, um, but that was a very hard time. That was the hardest time, I think, of anything. It was harder than leaving Rainbow. It was harder than leaving Sabbath. To lose the record deal was was heart-wrenching for him. Mm -hmm. And what was he saying in return when people, I'm assuming, were pushing him to change and saying, like, look, you have to adapt? No. He didn't even think about it. Wow. I don't, I'm not listening to you. I do what I do. That's it. I don't care. There's 10 people. I'll do what I do. Wow, that's the right way. It, it paid it paid off eventually, right? I mean, that period, <laughs> as devastating as it was, I mean, there was the it passed, it passed. It, yeah. you know, the metal thing goes round and round. It comes in, it's in vogue, then it's out of vogue. But there's always those fans. Those fans were still. I mean, one has been past thirteen years. I still have two and a half million fans on our web on our Facebook and web page and everything. I mean, it's like those fans are so dedicated. They're so supportive. They're just amazing. And he loved his fans just like they loved him. And that was genuine. That was absolute genuine. 
Oh, and also I would add one of the coolest things is so now, so one of his favorite singers and mine, Yorn, and then one of my favorite singers, Johnny Gioelli. I mean, they're huge Dio fans. So now you have yeah. these bands that are super popular now as like, there's a somewhat of a resurgence of heavy metal, uh, especially with Yorn. I think he's super popular and definitely in some countries. Uh, but yeah, and there's this resurgence. And I mean, they're bringing Dio back. I mean, Yorn does so many great covers. Rock and Roll Children is one of my favorite covers of all time. And then Johnny Gioelli, I mean, he performs Dio songs wherever they go. And I mean, I think he just did, uh, they just did the Axel Rudy Pell album, uh, Diamonds Unlocked, and they just mm -hmm. covered, uh, what was the Dio song? It was Lady of the Lake. So they just covered Lady mm -hmm. of the Lake, which mm -hmm. was, yeah, it's right. So, and then you have things like that, where you have people pretty much, as you too as well, obviously, uh, but you have people creating a, a sort of um, continuing the legacy of Ronnie, which is really great. And I mean, again, these are the people who are, uh, they're sort of maybe not, what would you say? They're, they're popular to the people who are much younger, or maybe people who didn't necessarily grow up with Ronnie's music. Yeah, you know, that's right. With, strange, with Stranger Things, you know, that kid was wearing the Lost in Line uh, denim vest. And, and, you know, it's great. What I think is great is that now is the only time ever I think that kids are listening to their parents' music. Because yeah. all those bands were creators. They were all, you know, innovators. You've got like Judas Priest, Deep Purple, um, Motorhead, uh, you know, all these people, Metallica. They're all creative of their own things, and you can only invent the wheel so many times. And it's really hard to do more music the same as what they did. Um, they created it by themselves without all the internet, without everything. They just went and they did it and they pushed and they did it and they built up a fan base and they did it that way. It was the old way of doing things. And that way you get such the fans are so loyal because they followed you all the way through. Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, no, no. It was actually literally what she was. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what you're going to. Yeah. I love it. So, yeah. And, and you uh, since, you know, again, I'm going to go back to the music a little bit. So my favorite song ever is Hungry for Heaven. And so I just want to talk a little bit about that because it's just it's amazing. So what you often get in music is you get uh, these songs that are just they're sort of about the bright parts of doing something great of, you know, let's say success, having your dreams come true. But the one line in Hungry for Heaven, well, I mean, it's a repetitive line, but it's the one line in the, in the, in the, the verse where in the chorus, I'm sorry, where he says, but you need a little hell so that song always resonated with me because i think for the most part when we try and we think of success we never think of the downsides of it and some of the struggles that we have to go through so the song begins and he you know he talks about it, it's um but you're a dancer but you're dancing on there just a matter of time till you fall and then i remember when i heard that the first time i'm thinking like wow holy shit yeah you're on this road to success but you're not understanding that there are going to be significant setbacks it's not just going to mm -hmm. be success but you can't give up and so why i love that song so much and by the way and it's also for our audience it's um from the movie vision quest which was madonna's mm -hmm. i believe first ever television first, slash yeah, movie it was, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. yep. first yep. ever movie slash television appearance yeah i love that movie vision quest but yeah hungry for heaven where he tells you like dude don't worry about it yeah you're gonna fall yeah it's gonna get bad yeah you're gonna have these setbacks but that's the kind of point of it so what he the way i kind of interpreted and what i took away from it was it wasn't just about the fact that like it wasn't just these facts of life it was saying that this is also going to build you and it's going to make you stronger yeah. it's not that mm -hmm. these setbacks are just in vain yeah. you actually need them because otherwise there would be no humility and i think that for for ronnie humility was really important very important and that was what this whole thing was you got to pay your dues you're paying yeah. your dues that's it you know there's bad times there's good times but you're you know you, you you're never going to have a perfect life and so you know pick yourself up and start all over again yeah yeah so can you talk a little bit about that so being on vision quest and obviously now it being one of madonna's first ever appearances <laughs> well that was uh that was something that came about by the record company and uh uh you know didn't know if he wanted to do it or not and then oh yeah yeah i'll do it yeah and he did it and uh it's a great song it's actually a shame because it's not uh that well um played or known in fact i'm i'm very surprised that you picked that song oh my god yeah and by the way i even love the cover of it by this band called brother fire tribe if you've ever heard of it no, but I'll listen to it. <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to send it to you. Oh my God, that's so funny. Watch, we're giving these guys a plug over here. Uh, yeah, no, it's amazing. It's a really, really great cover by this band. Yeah, so Hungry for Heaven, you're right. So it isn't a song that's well known. I think for the most part, people uh, focus on like Heaven and Hell. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. Rainbow in the Dark is the po popular mm -hmm. one. Uh, but the thing is with Hungry for Heaven, again, it tells you something that you can kind of hold on to. So a lot of the songs which I love are, again, they're very kind of fantastical, but something like this to me seems a little and feels a little bit more practical. So the thing that I love about Ronnie, 
the most is that going back just into a story and again the song it inspires you to keep going because it tells you like dude again these setbacks are okay they're supposed to teach mm -hmm. you and i think for ronnie education and learning was super important like all throughout all of his music all you hear is that that it, like it, it seems like for him maybe i'm wrong about this but it seems like for him everything negative or positive had a purpose absolutely absolutely if you listen to invisible um you know that that was written about kids you know um don't quite know what sex they even want to be but you know it's like the lady and the man that you know he but you want to be invisible but don't be invisible be what you are if you listen to that song yeah wow wait so that was about trans kids or potentially well it's about all kinds of kids trans mm -hmm. kids were included in it kids that were you know having a hard time at home kids that were you know going through different changes and didn't quite know what they wanted to do or what they wanted to be but wow. you know be yourself be yourself yeah wow and that also reminds me now of the video for rock and roll children which is like one of my favorite mm -hmm. music videos yep. of all time and, and also yeah and also the song right so it starts out you have this kid who's working as a bellhop and this girl his girlfriend i believe at the time so she tells him like hey what are you doing you're selling out and he says no like this is going to give me money we need to take care of ourselves and then of course the thunder rolls and then they end up going into the store and it's ronnie's <laughs> the magician there and the kind of the store keep and so what i love so much about the song and this is something that i identified when i heard it the first time as a teenager uh so so i'll get into my background a little bit especially since you mentioned yours uh so when i was a teenager i remember i felt like so i had a really terrible relationship with my stepfather and in the song and in the video that's what happens with the kid so you kind of have these like little flashback scenes as uh he's like going through his life and then he, go, he goes through, they both go through these different realms and so as they're going through these different realms you see like this kind of like so my stepdad wasn't necessarily an alcoholic he was pretty emotionally abusive but you have this uh scene where i think that father is an alcoholic and then so the kid is like running away from him and he's like oh my god and then the dad gets out the belt and then the, he kind of runs into the maze and then the girl runs and then she's like in this hypercritical family they have like all of these like pretty sweaters on and then she runs away from that because they won't allow her to be authentic and then they kind of meet one another and there's this really great line in the song when he says uh they were paper and fire angel and liar the devil of one another i was like oh my god that's so perfect and so i love that ronnie talks about these kids kind of meeting each other and it seems like his music more than anything was a conduit like it was meant for people who were disaffected and people who were in some ways yeah. either tossed yeah. out or not necessarily absolutely. tossed out. Absolutely. Yeah. He was yeah. always for the underdog. Always, always, always. And, you know, again, in, in the uh, Jack Black movie, uh, Tenacious D, Pick a Destiny, yeah. he plays the same the same part there. Which Jack, Jack is, <laughs> Jack is <laughs> such a funny person. He loved Ronnie and that it was just the fun things, fun things they had together. Um, and Jack is always great. He's always at a bowling things if he's not filming. And he's always a great supporter, Ronnie. He, he um, he's just great. Oh, interesting. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like how the movie came about and essentially how Ronnie got involved in this character in it? Okay, so um, Tenacious D did a song called Pass the Torch. Mm -hmm. And everyone said it was about written about Ronnie. So Ronnie said, oh, okay. So he listened to it and said, oh, okay. So well, he was doing a video um, called Push. Uh, so he said, oh, to warn us, I'd really like to have, oh, and then he listened to a bunch of songs that Jack was doing and, and he was um, changing the lyrics around, but they were like Black Sabbath songs and Theo songs. He was changing all the lyrics around. Hmm. I'm to meet this character. <laughs> so he asked Warner Brothers if they would ask Jack and Kyle to be in his video. And they did. They came and they changed the songs all around. They were buskers, actually, uh, <laughs> in the video. And um, they were making fun of Ronnie's songs, which Ronnie knew because Ronnie wanted them to. And uh, they just became really good friends. And then uh, Jack was doing the movie and he wrote to Ronnie and said, you know, I want you to be in the movie. I really want you to be in the movie and play yourself. And so Ronnie did. And they had such a good time together. They really had a good time. And uh, that was a part in the, in the documentary where, you know, he was going to sing a part in the film. And Jack was like, oh, yeah, we got plenty of mics. And Ronnie got, yeah, right. Okay. He didn't say anything. And then, you know, the, the, the microphones could not master his voice because his voice was too strong. 
I thought that was hilarious too in the documentary. Like they're like, okay, no, we have this Steinheiser, we have this mm -hmm. Robotron, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he's like, okay, but I mean, he didn't literally say this, but he's like, okay, so I guess we'll try, you know, my microphone now that I brought in the first place. He does it and then they're like, oh, this sounds amazing. You know, no distortion. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, he okay. had a custom a custom show microphone that he, he always used. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, yeah um, he... That was fun. It was a fun time, real fun time doing that movie. It was really fun. And uh, <laughs> we had such a fun time with Jack on that. Mm hmm. For me, you know, I got introduced to Dio. Uh, I was really young. Uh, MTV was on and there was a mm -hmm. music video playing. That was my first time ever seeing him. I don't even remember what song it was. I swear I was like four or five, something like that. Then, believe it or not, I mean, I, I don't feel uh, weird about saying this, but like the next time I was reintroduced to Dio it was actually Tenacious D. And then when I actually... Yeah, and I forgot how old I was when I saw the movie. Yeah. It, was, it was 2006, I think it came out. So yeah, I'm like in mm -hmm. early high school. I'm a yeah. sophomore or freshman high school at this point, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, cool. You know, like I'm really, I'm really into <laughs> it. And it kind of puts me back into like this, like getting back into uh, metal, power metal, all of that. And then, mm -hmm. uh, then just like, and this is weird. This is kind of just like the documentary showed it, but um, even Guitar Hero, like me and my friends would actually play that game, Guitar Hero. You have mm -hmm. Holy Diver in there. And it just mm -hmm. kind of brought like me back to that kind of space. And I'm really thankful for that, you know? And it's, I, I don't know how else I would have come to it, but it's like a cool way to kind of like get someone um, who maybe wasn't like exposed to him so much, you know, kind of into mm -hmm. his music. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when they, when they, uh, at that time MTV you're talking about, they had um, spent a whole bunch of money on doing the Holy Diver album, but the, song holy diver they had some time left over so they just said oh we'll just go up on the rooftop and do rainbow in the dark <laughs> and nobody played holy diver they all played rainbow in the dark and ronnie loved that video i said i look so tall in that video i love that <laughs> sebastian wearing those white boots <laughs> oh my god so awesome and you know um I know we asked uh, what was ronnie's favorite song his least favorite song but i'm actually curious what, what was your favorite dio song I have several. I have yeah. several. Um, he wrote Rainbow Eyes about me. <gasps> my eyes changed color from blue to green. Um, uh -huh. So that's one of my favorite songs. Um, I love Stargazer. Hmm. And I love Gates of Babylon because Gates of Babylon, I, I was there in uh, at uh, Heroville in uh, France when they were making that album. And I just heard that song Babylon and I was like, oh my God, I'm being carried away on a, a magic castle somewhere. That's what it makes me feel. And mm. I love the songs that make you feel like you're being taken away somewhere. Um, and now I love This Is Your Life because I feel that Ronnie had a premonition of something that he had to write a song about. This is your life. Do what you do in it. Just don't throw it away. Just do the best you can. Because this is your life. Not getting any more. Mm. No, I love that. And I also have to ask, going back to the Tenacious D movie. Uh, so I also, when I was a kid, so my two favorite singers at the time, and even still, I mean, I would argue, uh, are Ronnie Dio and Meatloaf. So what's so cool mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm, in that first mm -hmm. scene, you have Meatloaf and Ronnie Dio. Oh, and yeah. I was, I was yeah. blown away. I was like, oh, how did we get yeah. to that? Yeah. What the hell is happening? So I wanted to ask with Ronnie and Meatloaf. So how familiar were they with one another and just each other's music? Would you know? Oh yeah, Ronnie was a great fan of, of Meatloaf and, and and vice versa. They they got on really well. They really liked each other, and I think that when you get on with people, it, it makes things everything better. Everything gels so much better when everyone's liking each other, and nobody's got their, you know, their high hat on or their ego or anything else. And yeah. they they just yeah, it's like when we did Hearing Aid. Um, nobody had an ego there. Everybody was just so it was just such a fun time, and everyone just did their best and it was really cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because uh, that was something on my mind too. So you, at this at this time, uh, time you have all uh, the live aid, which was uh, which was really important. Obviously, you know. Uh, so with Michael Jackson, uh, Quincy Jones, and whatnot. So how did Ronnie put this all together? Because I mean, he was the mastermind. Well, I was kind of upset that you know none of the metal people were asked to be in it, and when there were all those dirty metal people, that wanted nothing to do with them. And um, actually, it was uh, Jimmy and Vivian that got uh, the idea together. And uh, they came over and talked to Ronnie about it. And then Ronnie was like, oh, yeah, great. And he just took the reins and ran from there. And 
uh, he started asking people, but he didn't really have to ask many people because they all just started wanting to do it. And they mm-hmm. all just came in and then we had everybody who was anybody at that time, you know, and it was, it was, that was really fun making that. There were all those people in the room and all those fun, oh, every, all the antics everybody's getting up to. It was really good. Really, really fun. Yeah. And it fits so well with Ronnie's charitable personality. So why was that so important to him at the time? Because he wanted to give back. He wanted to know that the metal people and the hard rock people cared as well. And then we raised, uh, I think, over a million dollars. And actually, when we are the world, they sent the money there. And a lot of the, um, you know, the government people took a lot of that money. We bought machinery for them to, to make things themselves, to sow the seeds and do all that stuff. So we sent machinery over there. So we knew that it actually went to the people that, that were needing the, the, the stuff and not just the big wigs. Oh, wow. Mm. Well, I think Ronnie wanted to make a statement there that, you know what, we're not dirty, heavy metal people. We care about people. Yeah, I love that. I mean, yeah, that's what you would take away from him. So as you know, just because we want to be uh, kind of conscious of your time, as we start wrapping up, what would you want sort of, uh, what would you want the message to be from Ronnie's music going forward? Because I mean, obviously now we're all, and I would argue us too, we're, uh, we're carrying his message forward, you know, and I want to know sure. specifically, what would you want that to be? And what would you want future generations to know about him? That he was such a wonderful person and cared about humanity and that uh, people should never give up. Never give up their dreams. Always carry on what Ronnie said. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Don't let somebody else bash you down and tell you you're no good. Don't let that abusive father tell you you're nothing. You're nothing. You are something. And you be that person. I love that. So, okay. And then now as we wrap up, so what do you guys have in the pipeline? What's coming out after the documentary? Is it the DVD? The Blu-rays are out? Um, okay. Yeah, that comes out on the 22nd. I'm very excited about that because, you know, the, the movie came out, uh, we premiered in LA, we premiered in, uh, in London, and it was in uh, theaters all over the world, but only for a couple of days. Yeah. And then it went, you know, to Showtime, it's on Showtime, so the Americans mm-hmm. can actually watch it, but no one else in the world can see it. So now that this is coming out worldwide on, on Blu-ray and on DVD, that the rest of the world is going to get to see it. And, you know, Ryan's got a lot of fans all over the world, and I'm really, really happy about that. Uh, what else do I got coming up? I've got on the 22nd of September, we have on BMG, uh, Ronnie's last four albums that he made. It's coming out on vinyl in all different colors, and it's a really lovely, lovely package. Mm-hmm. Um, Rhino is working on, I think, Last in Line next year, uh, doing a remix with somebody, I don't know who yet. We did one with Holy Diver um, this year with, uh, with Joe Barishi, and it was a remix, wow. and it was bringing the songs up to modern sound and i think joe did a fantastic job so you know we're looking at that i'm with um ronnie's engineer win davis we're in the vault looking at and finding all kinds of gems but you know i don't want to flood the market i like to put things out just like ronnie would want here and there and just pick out gems i think you know there's some unreleased material we found um there's a lot of stuff going on I, i i will continue um then the fans have more and more things of Ronnie's because you know I want to keep his music and his memory alive for as long as I live and then my daughter would carry on I love that and then so okay and then two things before we go uh first of all philosopher Krista Thomason who was on our show a couple of weeks ago she says thank you so much for keeping Ronnie's legacy alive and she also said thank you so much for the work that you do with the Cancer Foundation which she, she and all of us obviously find to be incredibly important and then the other thing that I wanted to say is just I can't even tell you how meaningful it is for me to meet you. I've been <laughs> dreaming about it, thinking about it for years, wondering what this would be like. And this was everything I hoped for. Thank you so much this for coming awesome. on. This for yeah. me was one of the best things to have ever happened in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm sure it's not, but thank you. But you know what, guys? Thank you for your support. Because, you know, without people like you supporting this, couldn't happen. So I, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I need you as much as you need me because we need to put the message across and keep Ryan's music and his memory alive. And that's what we're all doing. Absolutely. It will do. All right, Alan, final questions for Wendy before we wrap up. Ah, uh, yes. So if we wanted to follow you and follow your work, uh, where can we do that? Oh, you can go on Dio, uh, Dio, Ryan James Dio site, uh, Dio Cancer Fund, all those things tell us all the events that are coming up. We have, um, we have the, the Celebrity Bowling coming up on the 16th of November again this year. 
uh, which always raises a lot of money for our cancer fund. Uh, next year, we'll have the uh, Rock for Ronnie uh, with, in the park. So we've got lots of things. So if you go on to Ronnie Jones Deal site or the Cancer Fund, either one will tell you the events that are coming up and what we're doing and how we can, you know, continue keeping Ronnie's music and memory alive and raising money for causes. You know, we, we raise money for a lot of different causes, cancer being one, animals being another. And, you know, we, we, we just be kind. Just be kind. All those people that write nasty things that live in somebody's basement, just take one day and just do a kind deed. I love that. Oh my God. That's so great. Such a great message. Wendy, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was so epic. <laughs> thank you so much, both of you. It's been very interesting. You know, sometimes I do a lot of these things and some of them are like, oh God, same more questions, whatever. This was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Oh, Absolutely. That. Again, we've immensely enjoyed it. We hope you have a good night. We'll be in touch with you soon. You Take too. Care, Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.